0: Good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm one of the elders here. And tonight we are picking up in Psalm tonight. Wow. are doing Tonight, if you come back at 7, we'll be picking up with something totally different. But right now, we're going to be in Psalm 12. Uh, and the title for today's message is very clever, and that is words. Um, I want to mention as we get started where we're headed in the coming weeks. Mike will be speaking next week. Um, And he will be in Psalm 13, and then we're going to be in the Advent season. Nate will kick off our Advent series uh, this year. We're doing a series called A Child is Born, and so he'll be picking that up on the 28th. And this will be a four-week series covering the names Jesus is given in the verse Isaiah 9-6. So uh, that means there's only like five and a half weeks until Christmas let's pray. (laughs) But in all seriousness, let's let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that we're gathered here together today, uh, despite um, apparently it becoming winter. uh, Finally, I guess. Uh, Thank you for the warm and lovely November that we have had, though. Um, And I am glad that we've uh, been able to enjoy some nice weather. It's always nice to see the beauty that you've created, the wonderful colors on on the trees and whatnot. So we thank you for that. Uh, Give us the strength to endure this winter. Uh, We ask that you would open our eyes this morning to see what is in your word, see the truth of the gospel in your word, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing. We thank you uh, for your mercy and your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the psalm that we're looking at today is a communal lament. And David is the author of this psalm. He uses the plural we and us to speak for the community. This lament would have been sung by Israel in times of distress uh, that would be caused by the lies of people abusing their authority, perhaps rulers, uh, perhaps other nations coming in uh, throughout Israel's history. We see that happening time and time again. These lament psalms, sometimes called psalms of disorientation, help us to work through the times that we see brokenness in the world around us. So lament is actually a good thing. It's a good thing for us. It it helps us to work through all that we see in the world that that is wrong. There is so much wrong that we see around us, and lament helps us to work through it. And these psalms of disorientation, uh, though the word disorientation might be disorienting, uh, they help us to actually reorient our lives around the promise that one day Jesus will make all things right. So the use of lament in community is perhaps something that's foreign to us in our culture. We don't typically do that. We don't get together and sing a song of lament when we see something occurring that is wrong. Uh, but we can lament together. It's a, Like I said, it's a good thing. We can lament at what we see and reorient ourselves to look to the promise of the coming King. And at the heart of this lament that we're looking at today is the theme of words. So this morning we're going to pull out three ways that this passage speaks on words. First, flattering lips. Second, God speaks. And third, the living word. So let's read Psalm 12. To the choir master, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David... Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us, who is master over us. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Let's look at flattering lips. So words can build up. Words can encourage and cause someone to feel loved. Words can also hurt. Wounding a person greatly. Words are important. What we say matters, and even how we say it matters. If I walk up to my wife every morning and I say, I love you, (laughs) it's not going to feel like I love you. So what we say matters, and how we say it matters. We all know the pain of being lied to, or being lied about. It hurts to know when someone has purposely hidden the truth from you. It hurts to be misrepresented by another's words, causing others to think something of you that is separate from the reality of who you are. A 2010 study discovered that words can actually cause physical pain. So sticks and stones can break my bones, and yes, words really can hurt me. In this study, when certain words were spoken to people, they discovered clear responses in the brain's pain processing centers. And throughout this... As they studied it, they would have a doctor say, this might hurt a little, and it actually would. It would trigger a response even before the treatment was administered. Somehow in the back of my head, I'm just hearing my dad's voice a little bit. This is going to hurt me more than you, and I'm going, I think this study kind of disproves that. I don't know. (laughs) Just kidding. Sorry, Dad. I know you're watching. (laughs) The words we can use truly can have a devastating effect on people. Our words are effective, though they're not ultimate. The prosperity gospel, a, a false gospel, says that our words have the power to create. And that's not a scriptural teaching. However, our words can hurt a person, or they can help a person. In Psalm 12, David is writing about the harmful effect of words we see that in the first four verses here, save O Lord, for the Godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man, every one utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. So David uses the language of hyperbole here to express the despair that he and others are feeling, and we do this at times as well. You know, nobody cares about the poor anymore. It's statements like that. When we feel passionate about something, it's easy to feel like you're the only one that cares about something. Um, so, you know, we've all been there. We we can relate to what David is saying in these first two verses. The godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished, and everyone lies. Everybody lies. That's probably accurate. It might not even be hyperbole. Suffering, especially at the hands of deceitful people, will leave you feeling isolated. And so David is expressing that here. He's grieving over the rampant deception that has consumed so much of the culture around him that he really does feel like it's coming from everyone and the faithful are gone. In the Hebrew, the word for lies here means worthless or empty of meaning. The people's words meant nothing. Flattering lips is similar in meaning to our expression, a smooth talker. So what we see then is that the ones David is crying against are those who use words to harm by smooth talking with empty, meaningless words. So they're puffing people up with pride, with with false words uh, in order to abuse them and exploit them. This is seen today in advertising or politics. Take your pick of examples. In the advertising world, the goal is to appeal to the masses and avoid anything that could be considered negative. So images of beautiful, happy people using a product that will transform your life in a way that you just, you got to go get it. I mean, this is, this has happened a few times in my life. I remember one night in particular, like, particular I, I watched an Arby's ad, of all things, and Chanel said in the middle of the night, I just like popped up and said, Arby's. <laughs> so, like Somehow it got like, Deep in there. I don't know. Just, it looked amazing. Amazing. They had the meats. (laughs) The happiness promised in those Coca-Cola ads will totally revolutionize your life. In fact, there was a whole ad campaign that Coke had done a few years back called Happiness. And, I mean, man, you would have thought that a bottle of Coca-Cola would just change the world. And, you know, during the 80s and 90s, there was this thing called the Cola Wars. But uh, in the 90s, there was also something called the Pizza Wars. And so that's a war I think I would be okay with. (laughs) Big pizza chains went head-to-head in advertising campaigns, attempting to crush their competition. Their ads told the world in very smooth-talking, legally-approved, lying ways uh, that dominoes could cure depression. Little Caesars reunited estranged families. And somehow it was pizza that single-handedly brought down the Soviet Union. (laughs) So thank you, Pizza Hut, for that. In their commercial, they even featured Mikhail Gorbachev. So, I mean, it, it must have been, you know. Pizza's good, but I don't know if it's that good. Politicians are champions of smooth talking as well, promising everything and delivering nothing except more heartache. Yet every election year, we cast our votes for people who will tell us the same lies in another four years. This is what David faced, a people that were crafty with their words and smooth talking, using their tongue to control and harm others. They spoke from a double heart. For the Hebrew people, the heart was the seat of reflective thought and commitment. So to speak from a double heart is to not say what you really mean. It's as though you're hiding the truth in another heart. The heart is where these lies and flattery come from. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In Romans three twelve through 13, Paul describes fallen humanity in the same way And he's not using hyperbole like David. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. David in verses 3 and 4 prays for deliverance, that God would just remove the tongues of these liars. And sometimes sometimes we want to pray that way as well. This is a harsh punishment and probably a bit of hyperbole, maybe. But it shows the anger that David feels over those who have hurt and maligned the weak and needy. He shows that the ones causing this distress uh, feel like they're unstoppable and no one will master them. Scripture, however, says otherwise, showing us that those who think they can master others with their tongue will find themselves mastered by their tongue and our, our sinful fallen nature. The tongue is impossible to control. Our fallen and sinful hearts will pour forth with lies and deceit. James writes in James 3.8, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. So sin is serious. It has separated us from God. Our mouths are a tool of that sin, and like James says, full of poison. Unless we repent and believe the gospel... The result is eternal separation from God. Eternal punishment. Revelation 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So it's serious. David, in Psalm 12, is again showing us that Ultimately, despite all the wickedness and all the evil and all the deception that he's seeing, ultimately, his hope and our hope for rescue and refuge is only found in the Lord. And so he makes his appeal, and God speaks. As I said last week, speaking on Psalm 11, God sees. He sees all that goes on, and he fully understands. In Exodus 3, God saw the affliction of his people. In Matthew 10, Jesus gave assurance to believers when he said that God sees even the fall of a sparrow and cares more so for his own. In James 5, the apostle says that God knows their trouble. Not only does he see and know, but he also speaks. His response to David in verse 5 brings tremendous hope. When he says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The God who in Psalms 9 through 10 sits in judgment, who in Psalm 11 sees and examines all from his throne, now in Psalm 12 arises to defend his people. So we've seen that when we speak, our words have effects, sometimes to the benefit of people and sometimes to their detriment. But our words are not ultimate. God's words are ultimate. Our words cannot counter the creative and sustaining words of God. He has the first word and the last word. And God cannot lie. David says in verse 6 that God's words are pure. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Seven and... As, you know, we're probably familiar with Derek all these years saying he doesn't really get into the numerology thing. I don't either, but seven is often referenced as a number of purity and completion. So this means that when God speaks, there is no lie. Numbers twenty three nineteen, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? This truth that in God there is no dross of lies gives bite to the truth that God will defend his people. Though the word refuge is not in this psalm, I'm going to talk about it anyways. Because the theme of refuge seems to peak to the surface from this unshakable truth that God's words give yet another reason for David to have confidence in seeking refuge in God. Proverbs 30. Verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Turning to the New Testament, Hebrews six eighteen, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God is true, and it's impossible for him to lie. When he speaks, we can trust him. In him, we can seek refuge. And yet, we will still doubt. We will wonder how we will be rescued when today we face similar situations to what David is describing. Where the lying, smooth-talking words of those in authority over us cause distress and alarm us. How can we know that we will see deliverance and calmness? Whether in this life or the life to come. Dane Ortland, in his notes on Psalm 12, writes, God delights to rescue us in our need. How do we know this? Because in Christ, he's already achieved the greatest deliverance and accomplished our greatest safety, deliverance from hell and condemnation, safety from Satan, and eternal death. Jesus groaned on the cross in this life so that you and I need never groan in the next one. So at Grace Life, I'm sure you're familiar with this by now. I hope you're familiar with this by now or we might not be doing our job well, Uh, but our goal is to land every sermon on Jesus. Our goal in this study on the book of Psalms is to see how they point to Christ. So how does Psalm 12 lead us to Christ? When all around us are lies, deceit, and smooth talkers, when we have even seen our own tongues utter lies, even as believers giving into the flesh, uh, tempted to give up and say that, Everyone is a liar, including sometimes ourselves. We can be confident that there is one man who came and never lied. Not only were his words true, but he is the living word. And we see this in the the next two verses, verses seven and eight. We're going to talk about the living word. So, how again can we know that God is true? How can we know that his word to us is true? How can we rest assured that one day he will ultimately deliver us? We can we can know all this, we can rest in this because he sent Jesus for us. Jesus the living word has already delivered us from our greatest enemies, sin, death, and hell. When looking at Psalm 12, we see that the savior must be a righteous man whose words are truth. He must be a sovereign judge and an eternal protector. And ultimately, this can only be Jesus. From the first word of this psalm, Jesus has been anticipated. David begins this psalm in a peculiar way. And perhaps our English teachers would have corrected us if we had written it this way. But I was homeschooled. Oh, man, my mom's watching. Hi, I am. She did good with English. I just didn't learn it. <laughs> but David starts with the word save. Just save, O oh Lord. This word in the Hebrew is Yeshua. And it means to save or to rescue. This is the Hebrew word where we get the name Joshua. Which in our English New Testament is written as Jesus. So from the first word, David is crying out for the Messiah to rescue him. He is crying out for Jesus. The rescue and salvation that David was looking for is the living word, the son of man, Jesus Christ. John 1, 1 through 5. And, and we're going we're gonna to actually kind of park in the book of John for a little while here. I didn't even realize that as I was writing this how much we're talking from the book of John. But we're going to start with John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jumping down to verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, talking about John the Baptist, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the Greek word translated as word is logos. John, when writing his account of the life of Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chose this word logos to express this unique concept in a way that both the Jewish and Gentile readers would be able to connect to, though it's a little bit difficult for us to connect to. Uh, For his Jewish readers, by introducing Jesus as the Word, John is, in a sense, pointing them back to the Old Testament, where the logos, or Word, of God is associated with the personification of God's revelation. The Word of God was his revelation to them. In Greek philosophy, the Stoics held to a concept which they called logos. They described the logos as an eternal fire, And this eternal fire was the bridge and connection to all that is. Through this fire, all that is has been created and is sustained. It got to the place where this concept was so mysterious that one wasn't really uh, permitted to attempt to identify it or to really explain it. They just accepted it as this mysterious fire that has eternally existed. John writes, that this mysterious Logos, by which all was created, is Jesus Christ, the living word, both fully God and fully man. Jesus came to reveal God to man and to redeem all who would believe in him. To those who believe, he promises eternal life. Jesus says in John five twenty four Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And in John ten twenty eight, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So the living word speaks and his word is the truth because Jesus is the truth. John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So in concluding Psalm 12, David turns his lament to praise, which is common in a lament. There is a a concluding praise that brings David's heart or whoever wrote the lament back to who God is. God will protect his own. Yet verse 8 seems to kind of circle back to the beginning of this lament. Kind of goes back into the negative a little bit. Though refuge and ultimate deliverance is promised, David is acknowledging that uh, he will continue to live in the land with the wicked. Those with flattering lips may be dealt with at some point. Rescue may come. If it doesn't, though, God will still protect his people through the fire and sustain them as they live amongst the wicked. Verse 7, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. And so the same remains true for us today. We have been redeemed. We are eagerly awaiting ultimate deliverance when all wrongs will be made right. And while we're eagerly waiting for that day, uh, there are promises that we can hold to when we face the lies and deceit and the smooth talking of wicked people. So how does this apply to us? What we see from David in these last two verses uh, is that God will not always take us out. He's not going to isolate us from the wicked. God has a purpose in placing us where we are amongst the wicked people. Jesus prays in John 17 what is known as his high priestly prayer. It is an intercessory prayer for his disciples and the church to come. And in verses 15 through 19, he prays this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus prays that we would not be taken out. That his bride would remain. That she would be kept from the evil one in that. He prays and mentions that we're not of the world just as he is not of the world. And he prays that we would be sanctified or set apart in the truth. And that God's word is the truth. And then we're being sent out. We're being sent out to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. The primary role of the church in the world today is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. And to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Through the unity of the Spirit, living life together. All of these wonderful benefits are because we are in union with Christ. If you remember back to our series in Ephesians, we talked about that at great length. We're in Christ. We're in Him. And because of that, there are wonderful benefits, mostly seen in living life in the church. And I'm not talking about the building. What I'm getting at here is that the purpose for us remaining in a place like uh, Avon or anywhere else that we live, uh, where we're surrounded by people who don't yet know Christ, is that even though we're surrounding, surrounded by people who speak with flattering lips, and even though there are tremendous difficulties in life, Jesus has prayed that our faith would not fail. He is the word, he is the truth, and he does not lie. And so we know that his prayer will be answered. He's placed us here for a reason. Wherever it is that you live, wherever it is that you work, the family that you're related to, God has put you exactly where he wants you. Paul picks up this thread in the letter to the Philippians. Philippians two fourteen through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul writes to encourage those living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And we, though living 2000 years later or nearabouts, will continue to live in the midst of a wicked generation until Christ returns. Paul writes encouraging the Philippians and also by extension us to look to Christ. To hold fast to the word of life in the midst of the wickedness that surrounds us, believing the gospel. Charles Spurgeon wrote, It is not at all a bad thing for us to be put where there is opposition, because we shall not be stopped by it, but shall by that very process be made to shine all the brighter as lights in the world. So we can remain, we can shine as a light in the darkness, because of the sustaining power of the living word Jesus Christ. And this is the mission for us, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins through the gospel and to love one another. And this is how we shine. Jesus will preserve his bride from the lies and smooth talking of the wicked and the evil one. We will be kept by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have that promise in an often quoted, what we call a doxology, or I'm sorry, a a benediction We often quote this at the end of our services. Jude, there's only one chapter, so Jude verses 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He is able to keep us from stumbling. As David put it, he will keep us. He will guard us from this generation forever. So today, we can trust the God who doesn't lie. Because he didn't keep his own son from us. But rather sent him to receive the punishment for sin that we deserved. And so the offer of security and peace isn't based on the removal of evil and distress. Rather, we see beyond all the schemes of the enemy, the wickedness of evil people and those with flattering lips. We see that God is faithful and true. He sent the living word for us so that we might find refuge. And the promise is that one day all evil will be done away with completely. And so we can hold on to a promise that we have in Christ. One day he will right every wrong and every sad will be undone as J.R.R. R. Tolkien once said. Paul writes in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the scriptures to search and that in them we have eternal life it is they that bear witness about Christ, and that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We thank you for the living Word, your Son, Jesus. We thank you for saving us and redeeming us and sending us out into the world. Father, we ask this morning that you would continue to send us out to those who don't know you yet. Give us by your Holy Spirit boldness to share the great hope that we have within. Father, bless your people today. I thank you that in Christ we have the forgiveness of sins. Help us to be encouraged in that today, to remain encouraged in that tomorrow, and in the days ahead of us. When all the deceit and the wickedness wear us down, help us to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done and what you have said.